This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. to The Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch and today's programme is looking at the continuing fortunes of the Vectrex Games Console, an arcade-style machine released by Milton Bradley, GCE in the US and Bandai in Japan in 1983. If you're listening to this programme on the day of broadcast, then tomorrow is Devil's Night the day after is Halloween, and of course the 1st of November is International Play Your Vectrex Day. The fact that there is an annual day where fans of the machine get together and compete against each other for small prizes shows the continuing interest in this nearly 40-year-old console. The Vectrex is unique in that unlike many games machines released in the 1980s, it has a built-in screen, and I suppose most resembles an Apple Macintosh Classic 2 if you painted it black and the built-in monitor only displayed vectors, which is to say that all of the games and graphics displayed on the Vectrex are generated using lines, using a similar technology to an oscilloscope, and resembling video games that you might have found in arcades at the time, such as Battlezone and Star Wars. The music that you heard at the beginning of the show is from Raiding Party, a demo released for the Vectrex by the coder Fell with music by Ash when they were working together as part of the coding team Rift. Now Fell is part of the group Shattered Screens and he'll be joining us in the second half of today's show to talk about the latest game that he's working on Vec Ribbon, as well as the Raiding Party demo, and his short jam game, 3D Vector Space Cab. However, in the first half of today's programme, I'm talking to Derek Holzer, a sound artist performer who uses the Vectrex to generate images on screen at various festivals around the world. Derek, using hacks that have been developed by various other people over the last few years, which we'll be discussing in the interview, inputs an audio signal into the Vectrex which allows the machine to demonstrate complicated graphics on its screen. These three inputs, which transmit sound into the Vectrex, use these frequencies to create graphics on the screen overriding the built-in processor in the console, which would normally be used for games. If you ever saw an oscilloscope at school, then you might have come across the idea of a sound being transmitted to the machine and being displayed on the unit as a sine wave. 
the Vectrex hack takes this idea one stage further in order to create such simple shapes as circles, which then with manipulation of the sound can be rotated and the more complex the inputted sound, the vector beam on screen can be used to create the complicated outlines of shapes, such as a three-dimensional outline of a human hand. To give you an example of what these sound like, this is the sound of a simple line turning into a triangle, and then a hexagon, and then a 12-sided polygon. And in contrast with the quite clean tone and movement through similar frequencies which generated the polygon, this is the more drone-like sound which when fed into a Vectrex through the three inputs generates the outline of a rotating three-dimensional human hand. This transferal of sound information into pictures seems an awful lot like magic, even bearing in mind the audible sounds of tapes loading games in the 1980s and early modems, and I'm talking to Derek about how he generates sound and images for display on the Vectrex, which have been shown on stage at various international festivals. So in layman's terms, the work that you've been doing with the Vectrex, the way that I would explain it, is I guess a lot of people probably came across oscilloscopes when they were at school and can still conceptualise the idea that when you feed a certain frequency of sound into an oscilloscope, it creates a sine wave which represents some qualities of the sound. And what you've been doing is combining more than one input into the Vectrex which turns what we would normally see in an oscilloscope as a single line, first of all, to change a line into a circle or a triangle, for example. And then, yet again, by adding more information, you can generate the outline of three-dimensional shapes. Is that a good way of explaining it? <laughs> sure. What an oscilloscope does is generally the oscilloscope that you're talking about that you saw in, I don't know, your high school physics class or something like that, um, it has an internal generator that's sweeping that beam from side to side. And so what you see when you don't plug anything else into it is this horizontal line. And that horizontal line is being drawn by this beam. And when you stick something else in there, a signal you want to look at, let's say from your, you know, your signal generator or an audio signal or something like that, that's causing the beam to move up and down. But because it's also moving side to side on its own, it, you get this wiggly line. So it shows you the change in the level of a signal over time. There's a technical part. <laughs> so if you use an oscilloscope or a Vectrex the way that I'm doing it, you get rid of that horizontal signal. You have two signals that come in and you can move that point anywhere you want to move it. Mm. The fact that we see that as a picture is kind of a, a hack of our biology, right? Anything that happens to a human being slower than about 25 or 30 times a second, our brain can pick out and say, oh, that's an event. Anything that's happening faster than 25 or 30 times a second, our brain kind of moshes it together and says, that's something that's continuously happening right now. Mm. So in order to draw something that looks like a picture on a Vectrex or an oscilloscope, um, those signals need to be moving faster than 25 or 30 times a second. So if I show you a circle on the Vectrex, what I'm actually showing you is a dot 
that's turning around, but it's turning around 25 or 30 or 50 times a second. And I'm fooling you mm. into thinking that it's actually, it's actually a picture. Sure. If you play a game on the Vectrex, or if you played a game in an old vector video game, like in the arcades, I mean, I, I actually haven't played video games probably since I was about 12 years old. Mm. And when I was 12 years old, it was Battlezone and Star Wars, which were classic vector games. I mean, there was also Frogger, there was also Pac-Man, there were also these pixel-based games. For some reason, mm. I really liked these kind of slow-moving you know, line drawings or something. I was just attracted to them at that time as well. So if, if you're playing the Vectrex or you're driving your, you know, your kind of polyhedral tank around in battle zone or something like that, um, then that shape is also being drawn over and over and over again by this beam of light. And mm. changes in it happen when you draw a frame, you know, you're looking at the tank sideways and then maybe you rotate it a little bit more and you start to see the front of it, things like that. But again, that's all being drawn by this uh, single point of light. And that's called, um, that's called a vector graphic. Mm. We think mm -hmm. about vector graphics when we think about if you're a graphic designer, right? And you work with a scalable vector graphic for some internet artwork. Flash isn't even a thing anymore, but for a while, Flash... <laughs> was uh, was something that used uh, vector graphics rather than pixel graphics. And the nice mm -hmm. thing about a vector graphic is you can scale it. It gets bigger or smaller and you don't get these jaggedy pixel lines along the edge. Mm -hmm. So I'm going back in the history of computer graphics. I'm going to a mm -hmm. time before we used pixels, basically, to make computer graphics. Sure. But I mean, I, I guess what I find is fascinating and almost magical about your work is that when I think about how the Vectrex works and how those other video games like Battlezone or Star Wars work, there's a computer chip inside the Vectrex that you know has been programmed in order to create these vector graphics that appear as shapes on the screen. But what you're doing is mapping shapes, and those shapes have been created originally in a different computer program. That computer program has converted the information regarding that shape into a sound and then you feed that sound into the vectrex and it turns it back into a shape so it, it seems like this sort of magical process of synesthesia where sound and image are kind of linked in a way that we just don't normally think about i believe that you first started working in this medium around the turn of the century when did you first kind of find out the possibilities of uh, working in this way when are the first times I've, I mean, I'd played with oscilloscopes over the years. I've been, um, I've been building different sorts of synthesizers, audio synthesizers and audio visual synthesizers since the early 2000s. Yes. You know, I'd always kind of bumped into these oscilloscopes and somebody once upon a time probably said, Hey, there's this cool thing you can do. It's called a Lisa Zhu pattern. And you, you know, you plug two signals in there and you start turning the dials on your synthesizer and you get this crazy shape which is essentially all that you're doing when you're, when you're making these vector graphics. The, the, so the first ones that I started doing, I don't know, maybe it was like six or seven years ago or something like that. I had a lot of analog synthesizers that I'd been building and I had, you know, I bought an old oscilloscope and just started kind of going for it and, and trying things out, which is how most people get into this. They either they've seen some sort of a physics demonstration or maybe they've seen something that I've done, or especially now they've seen these uh, oscilloscope music videos that Jerobeam Fenderson has done, which really take them to an extremely high level of sophistication. And they go, hey, I want to do that too. And so, for example, there's a, a Facebook group that, um, that I run 
called, called vector synthesis and people join that up. And the first question is, okay, I found this oscilloscope on eBay. Does this do that? And they want to know, can this do that? So I started with just these really basic things with the synthesizers. And I realized that you can make really beautiful, pretty shapes. They're very hard to control. They tend to spin off and not remain stable anymore. Um, it's, mm. it's very hard to make a stable image with an analog synthesizer, especially when you're kind of turning these knobs to try to lock it into place or something like that. So I returned to a programming environment that I've been working with for a very long time called Pure Data. And in Pure Data, I have more control over the, the frequency, the amplitude, and the phase of the signals that I'm using. And those are the three things that this Lisa Zhu figure shows you. It shows you how fast something is moving relative to the other channel. It shows you uh, how far it's moving relative to the center of the screen. And it shows you the phase, which is a little bit harder to explain because that's a mathematical concept, but it shows you the phase relationship between the two signals. If you take, take a mono audio signal and you plug it into an oscilloscope, you'll get a diagonal line because both channels of sound, no matter how far they're, you know, no matter how the amplitude of them goes, no matter how great that amplitude is, they have a fixed phase relationship to each other. So you get this diagonal line. Mm. Most music that isn't made to make oscilloscope graphics um, <laughs> looks kind of like a diagonal line that kind of blubbers around all over the place. And it doesn't really give you a fixed shape because there's usually lots of different harmonics of frequencies in it. And they don't all have a very clear relationship to each other. You know, especially if you have a lot of, let's say, distortion from a guitar or crash or something from a cymbal or something like that, it just kind of sputters into, into this crazy shape. But it usually kind of goes along this diagonal line as well. So most people get disappointed when they want to, I don't know, plug their uh, Justin Bieber track into the, uh, <laughs> into the oscilloscope because it doesn't really look that impressive. But if you were trying to take that Justin Bieber track and master it to broadcast on the radio or to cut onto a vinyl record, you would be very interested in those phase relationships because you would want them to be as close to the center as possible. You wouldn't want something really off phase in either channel. So it's been a technical instrument as a way to look at sound as well for also a very, very, very long time for some very specific technical purposes. Hmm. Interesting. And also, I mean, I, you know, I, I suppose, you know, when I'm watching your videos, the simpler the image, kind of the purer the sound. So if we look at when you create the sound that a circle is generated through, it's a very kind of pure tone. When you create the sound that polyhedron is uh, created via, that's still relatively simple in terms of a frequency. But then when it comes to a shape like the mapping of a human hand, that begins to start to sound like music concrete or some sort of, you know, experimental electronic sound from the past that is still very much interesting today. And I wonder if it was discovering A, that your program could actually generate the map of a human hand that you could rotate in three dimensions on the screen. And then the sound of that image is also an interesting thing to listen to, which when you're doing a performance on stage, manipulating that sound slightly creates variations of the image. And also it's a fascinating image to look like on the screen. Yeah, I'm, I've always wanted my process to be fairly transparent. Um, I mm. like, I'd like that it doesn't seem like a complete black box. And so mm. by showing people something that is simultaneously an image and a sound, I think that it kind of brings them in a little bit more. 
Um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of processes in live electronic music, particularly when you work with a visual artist or a VJ or something like that. That's very black boxed. Um, mm. Either it's a very kind of arbitrary relationship between the sound and the image. Um, usually that happens when you have a VJ and a DJ or an electronic performer that have never met before. And you just <laughs> kind of put them on the stage and say like, okay, she's doing your visuals tonight. And um, uh, so you get, uh, usually it's very narrative. You know, you try to try to tell stories to each other through these things, which is also a really great way of working. Um, and in other things, you have um, different layers of complexity and some of it's very opaque. Um, uh, a lot of uh, the visualization of data or the sonification of data has this kind of black box approach to it where stuff goes in, you know, data information kind of goes into this black box and some sort of process happens inside of that box and then something aesthetic comes out the other side. Mm. And um, if the relationship between those two things isn't clear, it can be a little bit alienating to the audience. Um, on the other hand, there's this, uh, there's this wonderful phrase uh, called Mickey Mousing that people <laughs> use when the relationship is too literal. Um, and Mickey Mousing is, you know, when Mickey raises his hand in the cartoon and the music goes, <laughs> and it's like this kind of one-to-one -one very, you know, strongly linked phenomenon um, that, can, that can seem, yeah, very silly sometimes. So you have to really walk this line Mm. Um, I find that using these very abstract sounds or, or working with the sounds in a very abstract, as you said, kind of concrete way um, keeps it from being too silly, unless, mm. unless you just think that drone experimental music is silly to start with, which <laughs> is perfectly, a perfectly valid opinion, actually. <laughs> but I mean, but it is interesting that the two go hand in hand, that you can make these drone sounds, which is an art form in and of itself that people will quite happily come and be entertained by but you've managed to find this visual output that is also you know aesthetically pleasing and to me and I guess people who don't fully understand the the technology or you know the more time I spend with you I, I'm beginning to it, it does have kind of a magical quality the fact that sound can generate you know interesting images in and of itself. I don't think you should ever lose touch with that feeling of magic even if I explained <laughs> to you how it works I I still want it to look like wizard stuff you know <laughs> I mean the, the 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 scientist and uh, and the technician and the engineer is is in some sense the wizard of the the 21st century mm. um, behind the curtain manipulating these strange knobs to create these fantastic phenomenon and mm. I think that since um, probably since the 1800s this this kind of conflation of the wizard and the technician um, becomes very um, Becomes very strong in culture and, and actually this exactly this metaphor of the Wizard of Oz um, who looks like this kind of all-powerful you know smoke breathing you know <laughs> deity um, at first and then is revealed to be this kind of scrawny you know little guy behind the curtain <laughs> is it's a very appropriate metaphor in a lot of ways. Indeed. So we're also talking about the Vectrex today and you've been using Vectrexes assuming that that's the plural, uh, <laughs> vectrices, um, for your performances. Um, and in order to get the images that you want on the Vectrex, these machines have been hacked. First of all, in a very literal way, that three holes have been drilled in the side of the chassis. And then you're running inputs through those three holes, 
which first of all go into a socket on the outside of the Vectrex and then presumably on the inside of the machine that socket has then been wired into the way that the um, the machine handles input. When did you first find out uh, that the Vectrex could be hacked in this way? Um, let's see. There, um, I was I, I kind of saw this Vectrex thing some time ago uh, from two different uh, sources. Uh, one is a gentleman who uses the name Lars Larson, and he runs a synthesizer manufacturing company in Portland, Oregon, called LZX LZX hmm. for you people on that side of the channel. <laughs> and LZX focuses very much on video synthesizers. And so he was showing how you could use uh, the vector parts of his video synthesis modules with the Vectrex. And I thought it looked really beautiful. And simultaneously, there is a gentleman from Brighton named Andrew Duff. And Andrew Duff has been um, very, very active for a long time in, in working with the Vectrex as, as a medium and has also published um, instructions on how to safely open the Vectrex up and, and attach these connections that allows external signals to, uh, to be sent into it. Mm. This, um, this drilling of the holes uh, becomes a little <laughs> bit controversial in some scenes. There's, there, there's, there's a certain area of the gaming community that are, uh, that are very interested in collectible objects. And mm. to them, I have, um, pardon the expression, I have raped this poor plastic object by drilling three, pla you know, three holes in the plastic and somehow ruined the, the resale value which I, I find interesting because I have a very different relationship to consumer technology. I feel like um, kind of a prepackaged consumer technological object like that really only realizes a higher potential when you start to get your hands on it and start to modify it and start mm. to tell it to do things that it wasn't designed to do. Otherwise, you're simply locked into the sets of possibilities that um, an engineer and a programmer in Japan in the 1980s uh, provided for you. Mm. And um, some of those possibilities are, could be interesting for a while, but, um, but they're inherently limited because they're, you're not realizing your own potential in it. So for me to kind of open up a technological object and um, you know, stick my fingers in it, don't do this at home kids, um, <laughs> but put my hands inside of it and modify it um, is, is a very powerful gesture. And it's, and it's one that says that I, I am not content with the possibilities that this consumer object has offered me. In terms of resale value, I've started to see Vectrexes with this modification done selling for even more than Vectrexes that haven't had this modification done. So the, <laughs> the logic of it, you know, destroying a collector's item is also a little bit flawed at this point. Actually, I would have to say that probably there's a greater demand for Vectrexes that have been modified at this point than there are for people um, wanting to play them straight up. Well, I'm not surprised. You know, you've up, you've upgraded it in a way by giving it additional capabilities. And if you do this modification correctly, um, you can still play games, right? Mm. Um, if you if you use what's called a switching jack, so that um, when you don't insert a jack, you know, a male jack into the receptacle, the signal from the game computer still goes to the board that drives the CRT. Mm. Then you have in no way, you know, uh, compromised the function of this device whatsoever. Mm. A side note, um, because I, I, I'm very, always very interested in how people um, are kind of excavating old computer technology. 
is that there's actually a cart for the Vectrex that allows you to run uh, programs that were made for like the PDP-8 and the PDP-10, which were really early computers uh, from, the, from the 1970s, actually. Mm. So there's some graphics programs that were written for this PDP series that you can get on a cart for a Vectrex. And that's really interesting. Mm. And the other original feature of the Vectrex that I like a lot, and I saw a lot of potential in, but I haven't, um, I, I have the light pen, it's in a box behind me here, <laughs> but it's these drawing programs that you can use on the Vectrex. Mm. Um, I'm really not interested in playing, you know, shoot em up Space Invaders stuff, but if I could draw something on the Vectrex and then get that out into my setup and manipulate it with my audio signals and inject it back into the Vectrex, that would be pretty cool. Mm. Um, it's just uh, just a matter of time. I have the I have the light pen, but I haven't got the um, the cart with the drawing program yet. So it's it's yeah. uh, it's on my Christmas list. My birthday's coming up soon too. If any of your listeners <laughs> feel like making a donation to scientific <clears throat> scientific research, then. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting that you know you're talking about um, getting into the drawing programs for the Vectrex because, as well as people are programming new games for the machine and have been doing so uh, since the late '90s, there are also people who are using the Vectrex as uh, purely a display unit for music and animation. So you're getting kind of uh, of demos of different kinds of animation, uh, different kinds of music. And indeed, the other guest that I have on the show today is is doing that as well as um, dabbling in games. So in a way, you know, I, I find that what you're doing, like I said, is you're just kind of upgrading the machine if you're doing it in a way where there is also this switch that you can go back and forth between the game and the additional input. I, I personally have no problem with that at all, particularly with, you know, games machines that you plug into a TV when TVs no longer have the old sockets. You're going to have to do this kind of invasive um, addition to them so that they actually continue to have a use. It's nice that you mention uh, people doing demos on the Vectrex because out of all of the kind of history of computer art, I think that um, people in the demo scene understand better than most um, nowadays at least, what it is to be limited by a piece of hardware. And I think when you get into the demo scene and, and you get your cred in the demo scene by making the most complicated results with the least amount of resources, you know, <laughs> 56K of RAM or something like that, mm. you know? And uh, so um, it's uh, aesthetically, I'm not always super excited about what I see coming out of the demo scene because it's it's very tied to techno music and, and, and video game culture. Mm. But um, in, in terms of the, the, the technical chops that it takes to produce those things, um, absolute full respect, because they're, they're working in a very much more underground way than, than people working in, let's say, film industry or, or you know, the motion picture or music video industry or something like that, where you tend to have access to a lot more resources and, and how hard it was to make a visual effect in some industries isn't just simply isn't an issue. It's 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 yeah. not about that. It's it's about how spectacular it can be, and you can throw lots of money at it. So indeed, well, it's interesting that you should talk about video art that's created by using two machines simultaneously that aren't necessarily exactly in sync. Because actually, when people come to see your performances, they're not looking directly at the Vectrex because you'd have to limit the audience to about six people who would sit in a small circle around it. You have to... It's a very cosy situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you have to point a video camera at the Vectrex and then the output from that video camera is shown on the big screen so that more people can see it. And if you look at YouTube videos of Vectrex games of people who want to review them and share them with other people, cap capturing 
the Vectrex image is actually uh, quite difficult because of the flicker of the screen. So presumably that also took a while for you to figure out how to do it to get the right kind of video camera that would capture the picture, not be flickery, and also look good projected. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's good that you mentioned that. Um, and it's good to reiterate that an oscilloscope or a Vectrex does not have a video out mm. cable that you can just connect to it and put on, you know, record or put on a projector or something like that. Um, what, you, what you have to do is exactly that. You have to point, uh, point some sort of a camera at the screen. And um, in, in video art circles, this is called rescanning. Because what you're doing is you're taking something that's an arbitrary movement of a dot that can fly around at any speed and in any direction, and you're putting it back on the grid of pixels. So you're scanning it back into grid land, basically, and you're, 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 you're rasterizing it. And yeah, in the beginning, actually, I used my iPhone camera, and I found uh, I, the trick is to find either a camera or an app for whatever device you're using that gives you full control over the, the frame rate and the exposure and the focus and the depth of the field and everything. Basically, you need, a, you need something that, that emulates what a real, you know, a real camera would do if you have full manual control. And then you need to figure out the frame rate of whatever it is you're trying to shoot. And your camera needs to be exactly that frame rate. And it needs to, the exposure needs to be the full length of the frame. Otherwise, what happens is you lose bits because the whole image is never there at once. Mm. To get the whole image of, of one frame, the shutter needs to be open the entire time that that frame is playing. And then it can close for a second maybe and open back up or something like that. But anytime that that shutter closes, you're going to get a little bit of a, a drop in whatever you're capturing because you're trying to convert a continuous motion into a, a still image, like 25 mm. or 30 still images a second. When you're shooting human beings, some of the cinematic effects are to use a, you know, a very, like a, you know, uh, like a half exposure, right? This is called shutter angle in photography. You, you only expose half the frame so that um, the other half of the frame is, is, is dark or something. Or, but um, there's, there's different things that you can use to capture motion, which is why if we, if we look at, you know, human motion in like 60 frames per second or something like that, it can look like hyper real it can look like too much sometimes so but with uh with rescanning from the vectrex uh you want the exposure to match the match the frame rate now one thing that i've been doing to get around this issue of needing another piece of gear to look at a piece of gear to project that piece of gear is to work with <laughs> laser projectors mm. it's actually the the gig that i'm i'm that's coming up for me in a little more than a week from now when we're recording this is that uh, you can you can control the motion? <clears throat> excuse me. You can control the motion of a laser beam uh, that's controlled by mirrors in the exact same way that you can control that electron beam that's inside the television set or the oscilloscope or the or the Vectrex. So you can get it to move up and down. You can get it to move side to side. You can change the brightness, of course. But most laser projectors have three sources of light. They have a red diode, a green diode, and a blue diode. So actually, you can do additive color with them mm. and create all kinds of colors in different levels of intensity. And uh, because you're, you're not looking at something that's been frozen into a frame and projected on the wall, the, the, you get the really direct effect of what this moving point of light can do to your eyes. Um, mm. It does some very magical things when you get to see the entire motion instead of a line that's been frozen. And uh, also a, a laser beam is very high contrast. There's no, uh, like normally with a projector, you have what's called digital black. 
Like even if there's no, you know, no image on the screen and you're projecting black, you're still projecting light. So there's these gray pixels that are kind mm. of on the wall mm. and you can see the frame of it and the contrast between whatever actual image is in the projection and, and that digital black background isn't as good as if there is no light being shined anywhere else except exactly where that laser beam is pointing. So it's a really exciting medium. It has a lot of risks in it because lasers are, they're dangerous. You can burn your eyes with it. You can burn your skin with it. You can start a fire with it. I can tell you that I've, I've, I've scorched, you know, points and lines into walls of studios that I've worked at. If I haven't been careful enough about what I'm doing, the laser, um, but I've never, um, I've never put any of my audience members in jeopardy. So you have to be really careful of that. And they're also really, um, they're strongly regulated. Some galleries might like that though. After a performance, some galleries might like that if you did a performance and then they exhibited the burnt wall afterwards for a week. <laughs> well, there's there's a there's a growing number of people that are doing what are called cyanotypes using these laser projectors. Mm. Um, and in a cyanotype, you you treat a um, you, you treat something, you know, usually a piece of paper, but it could be lots of different things, actually, with mm. a light sensitive uh, chemistry. And um, I think cyanotypes mainly work with ultraviolet light. So you expose some ultraviolet light on it. Um, and if you draw a repeating pattern with a laser, let's say you draw a circle on this this surface with the cyanotype uh, treatment on it, and then you kind of rotate that circle so that it starts to turn towards you, um, then the, the cyanotype will capture every movement of that laser beam over time. And it will give you this kind of time lapse of this thing moving. You'll see every motion of the one. They're really quite beautiful. And um, because you're not trying to draw an image that um, stays in the eye, you can draw it very slow and make something really complicated. Mm. I mean, we were talking about frame rates uh, in particular, how you need to sync up the the video camera with the Vectrex, but I guess that's always a limitation anyway with when you're working with the Vectrex because um, going back to the image that you have in your video of the human hand, if you, I might get this the wrong way around, if you increase the frequency of it, you get more detail, but it starts flickering while if you reduce the frequency, it becomes a more solid line, but you have less information on screen. Is that right? <laughs> this is one of those basic information problems that's called bandwidth. It's mm. how much information can you represent in a given amount of time. Um, one, of the, one of the things that makes the Vectrex really special compared with, let's say, an oscilloscope, and an oscilloscope is a technical instrument that's meant to measure signals up into the, uh, you know, kilohertz and megahertz and, you know, a modern uh, a modern oscilloscope that you would use for uh, troubleshooting digital circuitry would have to work in the gigahertz range. You'd need mm. to be able to see a clock signal at, you know, 2.4 gigahertz or something like that and, and analyze that. Um, a Vectrex is not designed for any sort of scientific display whatsoever. Um, and in fact, um, its response to a signal is very slow. Um, anything over, um, I don't know, anything over a thousand hertz or something like that. Um, the the Vectrex beam is going to struggle to uh, to display it properly. The, the the beam will never move fast enough to draw things. So if I want to draw that three D human hand, which has like thousands and thousands of points in it, um, if I draw if I try to draw all the points and draw them really fast, what happens is the Vectrex the beam starts to kind of cut corners, and instead of having sharp 
points and angles and things like that. It just kind of takes the path of least resistance in some ways. Mm -hmm. The whole image gets smaller. It, get, it gets kind of um, muddier and more kind of smeared out. I could draw that same hand with its, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 points or however many points are in it. But if I drew it at a speed slower than 25 times a second, um, you'll get a lot of detail. You'll see all the intersections of all the lines, but you won't see the entire hand at once mm. because it takes too long to, to, to draw all those points. Um, and by the time you're looking at one part of the image, another part of the image has already left your left your mind's eye, let's say. So you'll never get the entire picture all at once. Um, with lasers, you can do that too. You can, um, you can draw an image on the wall and because of this kind of after image, sometimes um, you know, people actually only are consciously aware of a part of that image, but the whole image is kind of burned into their brain somehow and they kind of remember it. So it's a trick you can play a lot. Mm. Um, lasers move even slower than a Vectrex um, because it's physical mirrors that are moving the beam. So you have to be really careful about the signal that you send into them to not damage the, damage the motors that move these mirrors basically. So there's really low bandwidth, uh, low bandwidth, high contrast. A Vectrex <laughs> is kind of low bandwidth, kind of medium contrast. One of the things that I like about that low bandwidth that the Vectrex has is is exactly this kind of smearing. It's it's kind of a it's it's a very um, a device specific uh, distortion of the image, and what it does is um, in a in a really uh, precise oscilloscope, some of those same drawings would look too crisp. The mm. lines would look really harsh somehow. So the Vectrex is a little bit like kind of putting, you know, putting somebody else's, you know, prescription glasses on or something like that. It kind of fuzzes it out, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, Playboy magazine from the 60s when they would put the Vaseline on the camera lens and kind of make the boudoir all fuzzy and stuff like that. The Vectrex is a little like that, or it's it's sort of like, a, I don't know, like a, like a 19th century romantic painter where there's no hard edges anywhere. Everything is just kind of soft and beautiful and stuff. So it's, it's a very specific distortion um, that works for some of the things that I want to do really well. And I guess, you know, as an artist, a musician, a performer, it must be interesting in a way that you're using a machine that has these limitations, that you can't create uh, information that is beyond a certain amount of detail, beyond a certain kind of refresh rate. And therefore having that constriction to work against uh, means you're limited to certain kind of sounds and certain kind of images for them to be both hourly and visually pleasing. But it does give you a limitation to work within. I want to take that question and make it a little bit bigger for a second, because one okay. of the things that I'm interested in, in working with old technology that limits you is to make us aware of the limitations of technology now. Every piece of technology that's ever been invented has been invented to either, um, either help people realize a certain dream or help them cope with a certain fear, if you want to be really general about it. A lot of Cold War technology was about the fear that the Russians were going to bomb us before we bombed them. A lot of 1950s household technology, on the other hand, was about liberating you from the drudgery of having to, um, you know, wash the clothes and the dishes so that you would have more creative free time. Um, Norbert Weiner, who was a writer on cybernetics, called this a human use of human beings. We liberate ourselves from drudgery and fear in order to um, reach higher 
human creative potentials. We have all these apps that take care of all these things and we have robots that kind of vacuum our carpets and stuff for us now. We should have lots of free time. What do we do with all this free time to realize our higher potential? We watch cat videos on YouTube. Yeah. Um, we kind of get sucked back into the technology a little bit. So by using a, a really old piece of technology that has um, to our minds, to our contemporary eyes and ears, this is a really limited object. This thing, like how did anybody ever think this was like cutting edge, right? This thing is so slow and so old and so heavy and so hot and it uses so much power. It's very unecologically friendly and all that sort of a thing. Um, when in fact, 50 years from now, people are going to look at our iPhones and this big monitor on my desk that I'm, I'm talking to as we're, as we're talking on the Zoom here or um, cars or airplanes or all these things. I mean, all this stuff at a certain point will look as clunky and old as, I don't know, a, um, a steam-powered cotton gin or something, right, from, you know, from the 1800s. Um, and so by using old technology, it's, it's a way of talking about the kind of the dreams and fears that that technology was designed to address. Mm. Um, and obviously, at a certain point, it stopped addressing them, right? Um, as the same thing will happen to the technology that we use now to address our own dreams and fears, if, if you'll. But, uh, but if I could get you to answer the question, presumably the limitations of the Vectrex, though, are something that are exciting as an artist, knowing that you can't go beyond this frequency, you can't go beyond, you know, this amount of information. And then having that constriction makes you have to work in a certain kind of way in order to make certain kind of images and and get what you want out of the machine as a performer yes besides the the philosophical uh, implications mm. of working mm. with kind of media archaeological artifacts mm. um there are very exciting things about being limited formally for sure um and and I think the whole history of 20th century art talks about um, the uh, the liberations that come from constraints. Mm. Monochromatic painters, for example, or, or mm. hard edge painters, um, who only wanted to use uh, primary colors and straight lines and color fields alternating and things like that. Um, and in those kinds of things, um, these modernist artists found really exciting liberations from other things that had been going on before that they wanted to kind of distance themselves from, right? So mm. in a lot of cases, the, the avant-garde was the, uh, the avant-garde of, of getting rid of things and finding more constraints. Um, and, and in that same way, it, it relates to this work that we talked about within the, um, within the demo scene as well, mm. um, where it's, it's kind of a, um, it's a point of pride. It's a, it's a sign of, of, of artistic prowess, let's say, or artistic advancement to be able to do a lot with very minimal technological resources, very minimal amount of processing power, very limited amount of memory in the machines that you wanna work with, um, and very limited uh, resolution on the displays. And out of those things, uh, people in the demo scene still managed to create um, very, very visually complex things uh, without resorting to uh, probably what they would consider as trickery, right? Like mm. you know, multiple takes or editing things together or you know, loading something and capturing it. And then for the next section, you would wanna load a different program and then capture that and splice them together. Uh, for them actually, the idea that it can all be run from a unified block of code 
and you could give that code to anybody with that machine and they would get the same results is that's 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 a that's a goal that's 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 a, a very uh high goal that's set in that scene and that's that's a very interesting way of working mm. so um unfortunately because of the vagaries of program timetables and whatnot the conversation we're having right now is going to be broadcast I think actually at the same time as your performance on the 29th of October so people will be listening to this and not seeing you or listening to this and your next performance will have happened but presumably you'll you've got more lined up in the uh, not too distant future any in the UK by any chance? At the moment, no. Um, I feel like the whole world is starting to wake up um, from this uh, particular, um, let's say, series of events that's plagued us for the last uh, year and a half or something like that. Um, some people I know have been a lot more active during this time in touring. I haven't because I found this kind of PhD thing that um, eats up quite a bit of my time, but um, I'm definitely uh, staying open to possibilities. Sure. Cool. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you today. And certainly, um, I'd recommend anyone listening to check out your videos on YouTube. And uh, when the madness of COVID and the strangeness of the world we live in right now does start to abate, hopefully we'll have the chance to um, to see one of your live performances. Just to, just to clarify, um, the, the best place to look, look at samples of the work is actually on Vimeo. Okay. Uh, Vimeo.com slash Macumbista, M-A-C-U-M-B-I-S-T-A. Fantastic. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. You can find Derek Holtz's various vector-based video graphics on Vimeo.com stroke Macumbista. That's Vimeo.com stroke M-A-C-U-M-B-I-S-T-A. And Derek's website is macumbista.net. There are also videos recorded at the Zagreb Vector Hack Festival, which were the first videos of Derek's I saw online, and also include a presentation by him on the history of computer technology, how it has been variously used for warfare and entertainment. And you can find these at tinyurl.com stroke vector hack. In the second half of today's program, I'm talking to Coder Fell, who has worked on various titles for the Vectrex. These include a sound and video demo called Raiding Party, which displays various moving graphics on the Vectrex with a musical accompaniment by Ash. And I'm talking to Fell about his various recent projects, including the short game 3D Vector Space Cab and the forthcoming title Vec Ribbon, which is being released by Shattered Screens and is available both as a download and as a forthcoming fully packaged game housed in a cartridge with a colourful overlay to change the colour of the graphics displayed natively by the Vectrex in monochrome. Vec Ribbon is a remake of a classic video game from the turn of the century, but Asfel is slightly concerned about the original creators of the game being unhappy with the fantastic Vectrex homage stroke demake all references to the original have been redacted, but if you look up Vec Ribbon online, you can probably work out what we're talking about. To give you a flavour of the game, here's an extract from the track Snowfall by Ash and is available as a playable level from Shattered Screen's website.
So I guess to start off with, uh, should I call you in the interview or should I call you Fell? <laughs> Probably Fell in the context. Okay, cool. Is 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 this particularly a, a shattered screens thing that all of your team like to use pseudonyms or is it becoming more common um, in terms of writing games? Um, for me, that's my demo scene handle. Sure. So it all, and it's kind of, um, I think the, the demo scene persona that I like to inhabit is, right. is Fell. And that's, I think that's the same persona that I like to make games with, if that, cool. if that makes any sense. Um, and yeah. Ash, our musician, is the same. Uh, that's a, a demo scene, Nick. So mm. it, it all kind of ties together, I think, when you're doing retro games. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess if you're uh, building a reputation in the community, you know, um, whatever handle you start using, you want to stick with it, I guess. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> so as you mentioned, you've worked on demos in the past, and I've watched your raiding party demo, which I thought was terrific. I really like the way that it uses all sorts of different kinds of animation on um, the Vectrex, and just when you think it's doing one thing, it turns into something else, and uh, I, I thought it was really cool. Did, did that come about with you and the other members of Shatter Screens before you kind of formed to make a, a gaming company? You know, Two-thirds of the team <laughs> was already in the, the demo scene group Rift which I think is coming up on its 10-year anniversary soon. I think that'll be next year, or at least the anniversary of the first released production. And around 2015, 2016, we were actively looking for a new underrepresented platform that we thought we could do cool things on. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the demo scene to this day does amazing things on, for instance, the Amiga, which also means the bar is very, very high. Hmm. Uh, I, I love to code for the Amiga, but I'm, I'm not one of the elite. So if I'm going to, um, the, dem- the demo scene being competitive by nature, you know, if you're, if you're looking for like your own little niche, you, you might go off and try and find a platform that nobody's really done very much on. Um, mm. And certainly there were other Vectrex demos, but nothing that, um, that, that I thought showed off some other things that the machine could do. And, and really, as soon as I learned about the existence of the thing, I, I was just completely in love with it. I had to have one. Yeah, nice. I mean, for people who, who don't really know about how retro games are being used to create kind of music and images. What is the demo scene? Is it kind of, in a way, just a, a, a platform for making art uh, using um, video game technology? To, to a point, that's, that's true. And, and, and it's fairly accurate um, to sum up the state of the demo scene today. But historically, it all started in the early 80s, really with software cracking groups. Uh, on the 8-bit home computers, as commercial games started to become something you could trade in the playground, then people who had the knowledge to remove the copy protection on the games would do that and put like a little intro screen at the start of the game saying, hey, you know, cracked by whoever, just as a, a calling card. And the people who are into that sort of stuff, being of the mindset that they are, this grew into a very competitive thing. And so the intro screens were sometimes more impressive than the game itself just showing off what the machine could do and what the coder could do. So over time, this split off into the, the, the people who'd been making intros for Cracked Games kind of formed the first pure demo groups who weren't so much interested in putting intros on the front of Cracked Games, although intro still existed as a size-limited competition category, <laughs> but also allowed for full-size demos where mm. the aim was just to go wild and show off whatever you can do with the machine. But of course, in those days, there's, there's very little room for art assets. The machines wouldn't even have really been capable of decoding a JPEG in real time. So <laughs> everything that you're doing has to be done programmatically. So I, I think um, actually op art is, is a fairly 
good kind of reference point mm. because it's all about setting up an algorithm uh, that's going to eventually make a picture and letting it do its thing. You know, that, that's that's really the crux of it is that everything's happening in real time. And today, the use of art assets in the unlimited size demo competition category is is obviously very prevalent. You know, if you can shove a load of 3D models in there, you might as well do. But mm -hmm. a lot of the most in interesting innovation still happens in a space where you can't really have art assets because in an intro competition, you have maybe four kilobytes that yeah. your finished yeah. Windows executable can be. So again, you, you have to resort to doing everything that you can in real time, including the, the music as well as the visuals. Mm. And that's around the size of a lot of Vectrex games as well. So having kind of toyed with that size of program, was that something that made it easier to do a demo for the Vectrex? Or once you came across this programming language for the system, you realized actually it's kind of a challenge. <laughs> it's the, the challenge for me on Vectrex, you can fit a 32 you can fit a 32 kilobyte game into a standard cartridge and mm. you can also get fancy and do um, a 64K if you, if you do a little bit, a bit of uh, bank switching on the cartridge. But I never feel like I'm going to run out of space on Vectrex, certainly. Okay. Um, 32K takes a long time to fill. Uh, actually, the game that we're working on at the moment, it, it didn't take as long as usual because we have uh, a lot of music, which does take some space. So mm. that's going to be 64K. But certainly if I'm trying to make art, then 32K is pretty hard to fill. The, and also, the, the one kilobyte of RAM limitation might sound extraordinary, but I never even butt up against that. What I do is run out of processor cycles. Hmm. I've got 30,000 clock cycles a second if I want 50 frames a second. And that's, that's where all the optimization happens, um, trying to get the runtime performance so that you can, just so that you have time to draw all the stuff you want to draw on the screen, really. So what sort of platforms were you uh, working in before you came across the Vectrex? And when you did come across the Vectrex, what was the experience like? On the demo scene, for me, just Amiga and PC to date. Right. I think there might have been uh, a, a couple of outliers in there, but, but that was the vast majority of my experience. Mm. Um, so I was, I was used to assembly language uh, from the Motorola 68K and an Amiga. Um, and I'd also done a bit of Z80 uh, assembly language as well. So coming to the 6809 after those two is, is actually a, a really comfortable place to be. Mm. Um, for one thing, the, the main difference between uh, 68,000 assembly language and Z80 assembly language visually to, to look at the code is that the operands are reversed. So Motorola does it one way and uh, the Z80 did it another way. So when you come to the Vectrex, everything's the right way around because it's the Motorola way around. So that's, okay. that's really comfortable. Um, after the Z80, it's, uh, it's just super comfy and easy to program. Mm. Um, it's the 6809 in the Vectrex is, is kind of, I think, a further development of the 6502, uh, which you'd find in a BBC Micro and a bunch of other things. Oh, okay. Is that, wait, is, that, is that right about the BBC? I couldn't swear to it. Uh, fact check me, please. <laughs> but, sure. um, I think a lot of this may go over the heads of our listeners anyway. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, I'm already using far too many numbers, and I apologize <laughs> for that. Um, but it's, it's much, much easier than 6502. You, you don't have to deal with resetting as many flags and stuff. So it's actually a really, I mean, obviously, as far as arcane platforms from the early 80s, late 70s go, it's, it's a really comfortable platform to program for. Hmm. 
But in terms of of thinking in visuals, in you know creating your visual demo or indeed the games you've worked on as well, did it create um, issues just thinking in vectors rather than sprites, or was it a natural tradition uh, transition for you? You're absolutely right that um, it, it it makes everything a little bit different. One of the the main practical differences is that uh, on an Amiga, say, you have an area of video memory, which is basically the, the computer's going to draw whatever's in that area of memory straight to the screen. So all you need to do to build up your picture is to change regions of this memory to a specific color or whatever mm. it is you want to do. Um, the actual task of every frame, taking the contents of that memory buffer and putting it on screen is completely automated on most platforms. It's not something that you even think about. On yeah. Vectrex, though, there's no screen memory. There's no there's nowhere that I can kind of like build up a list of vectors that the machine's going to automatically draw for me. So that means I need to spend some of my precious, precious CPU time every frame actually physically putting voltages onto op-amp integrators and waiting for the beam to draw the line that I want mm. and then consider where I'm going to go from there. So in that respect, it's, it's quite like, um, do you remember uh, Logo with the turtle on the... Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, on the BBC. That's, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely aging ourselves there. <laughs> uh, I, I certainly remember making that turtle do cool things on big sheets of paper on the floor and stuff. And it's it's actually oh. really analogous to that. That it's drawing so, a map rather than creating characters. Yeah. Indeed. So that's kind of gets you into almost like a spirograph sort yeah. of way of thinking. Also, it's it's kind of an aesthetic that people have been trying to emulate on the Amiga and a lot of the other eight bit and sixteen bit machines for years yeah. and years. You know, being able to do certainly 3D wireframe graphics, if you could do that, you were, you were well set on the Amiga. Um, <laughs> and then you could move on to, to shading them and stuff. But, mm. you know, one of the more complicated parts about that, about doing that on the Amiga, would have actually been making a fast line drawing routine. Even though all it's got to do is go through that area of memory and flip a bunch of bits, doing that in a fast way is actually non-trivial. So being able to do that, on, on that's something you get for free on Vectrex. You know, mm. you, you don't need to think about anti-aliasing. You don't need to really calculate gradients for your lines and stuff. You know, you're going to get a beautifully crisp vector. So it's it's not like everything's a hardship. You you just have to adopt a different mindset, really. Mm. And once you started playing with the Vectrex, did it also kind of suggest ways that you could create visuals that were perhaps atypical for the machine? So, for example, when I was watching Raiding Party, um, a lot of Vectrex games... Uh, use straight lines so everything is some kind of polygon and then in raiding party when all of a sudden you switch to uh the foliage that's kind of like waving in the water in the wind and it's it's beautifully oh, drawn yeah. and it's curves you think oh the vectrex can do curves it's just something that seems <laughs> it, it seems such a simple idea it but it's, it's it's beautiful you it's know? under it's underexplored i think it was there's <laughs> one of the um when the vectrex was actually in production there were only 18 official software titles released for it um mm. there are a couple of racing games and i don't remember which one but one of them did use a curved vector for uh huh. drawing the track curving off into the distance but mm. it's it's actually um really subtly done in that case and you can't you, you don't really get a feel for hey there's curves um but i, I wanted to do it more explicitly and, and show that, that that is possible because at the end of the day it's, it's a very you know it's an analog machine so being able to get these kinds of patterns is is something that you would expect to be able to do one way or another, even mm -hmm. if it's not necessarily configured to allow you to do that easily. Certainly the the presence of curved vectors is more a happy accident of the hardware 
than mm. uh, something the designers built in, I would think. Indeed. I mean, it's, in terms of the use case that they expected. Mm. And then another uh, kind of short piece of entertainment that you worked on um, before this larger game that you're doing with Shattered Screens um, is 3D Space Cap. Um, 3D Vector is... Space Cap. That was, yeah. yeah, that was loads of fun. That was as a Ludum Dare, um, which is a game jam. Mm. And you have uh, it's either 48 or 72 hours, I think, to make something from scratch. Um, and that was the first time I'd done any uh, live streamed development wow. um, on Twitch and had just a, a fantastic weekend making that game. Um, and, you know, a few viewers did come along who, who stayed for almost the entire thing and were able to uh, include some good gameplay suggestions. And, mm. you know, they would get a, a build every couple of hours that they could play on an emulator and tell me where the gameplay needs to be tweaked. Um, mm. Actually, the content, the, uh, the continents on the map in the game are each named after participants from that Twitch chat, <laughs> which is cool. Nice. <laughs> and it's a fun game. I mean, you know, obviously there have been other kind of taxi games in recent years i guess the most famous is crazy taxi on um uh, one of the sega machines and this is a much sure. more uh, simplified idea that you rotate the globe and you have to pick up passengers and you have to pick up fuel but it's it's you know it's a great kind of pick up and play type of game i mean what sort of things were inspiring you when you made it certainly um crazy taxi and there was there was another the ugh. I, I can't remember the name, but I'm sure there was a, a similar 8-bit game uh, mm. that, that might have eventually inspired Crazy Taxi. Um, there is a bit of a lineage of taxi games there uh, <laughs> where, where basically, as you say, pick somebody up, drop them off, refuel uh, against a, a time limit or a, a fuel limit. Um, mm. I remember a really good... There was a, like a helicopter rescue game yes. on uh, Spectrum, I think. Yeah, something like that. Is it, It's ringing a yeah. bell. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's kind of part of that lineage, I guess. Mm. And also I, I wanted uh, a single screen game because if, you're, uh, if you just have a, work, a weekend to work on it, you, you really need to choose your battles. And I thought <laughs> if, we can, if we just have one screen to render and all the gameplay happens there, then that should be manageable. Mm. And presumably throughout that uh, live programming marathon, you were mainlining Red Bull or a similar product to keep going. <laughs> it's just i mean it it seems a very kind of strange combination of the modern and the old that you were making this game for a modern competition under a time limit live streamed on twitch but were programming for a machine that's nearly 40 years old and i really like all think, those kind of contrasts you know i think the more surprising thing than the eccentricities of those sorts of creators are that there's an audience mm, indeed and on Vectrex, there's a, a really strong collector scene. Um, I, I think part of that is that, as I was saying, there were only 18 games released when the thing was actually in production. And as a result of that, a lot of the early collectors have a full set, which, which really creates, um, uh, if you're able to bring out an attractive product, mm. you know, there's a lot of people who, who want to complete their, keep their set complete. But, you know, these are, these are the same people who are going to insist that the boxes have to be the right size. You know, it's, 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 a, it's about a lot more than just creating the game. And we're trying to bring a, a really beautiful package. Yes. Which well, is I'd really like... what slowed us down so much with the manufacturing issues caused by the pandemic, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've been following what's been going on with the creation of Vec Ribbon. And, uh, you know, part of 
your delay was noted with the creation of an overlay because for people who don't know the machine uh, the Vectrex is a monochrome vector machine and so to make the graphics colors like with the original Space Invaders in the 1970s you have to slot a piece of transparent colored there it is for people who can't see it on I can't see what we're talking about on radio. I'm looking at the VEC ribbon overlay, which is a beautifully gradated, is that a word? Um, piece of coloured, gradiated, there we go, piece of coloured plastic that's going to go over the screen. So I guess even just getting that right in terms of using the right plastic and finding the right colour and so on, you know, eats up a chunk of your development time. Absolutely. And that pretty gradient is actually what's caused our most recent delay because <laughs> and again only you'll be able to see this but you'll notice that it's uh it's very very diffuse if i'm behind the overlay my face doesn't stay in focus mm. whereas if i if i had an original overlay in reach you'll see that the transmissive transmissivity of the plastic is almost perfect it's like glass yeah. um which it needs to be because this overlay actually sits about a centimeter away from the screen if it was flat on the screen it wouldn't be so much of a problem but it's a, a curved CRT with a flat overlay in front of it. So there's, there's parts that are a lot further away than other parts. So for that reason, we need to find a different printing process for the gradient or go back to uh, single color films, which we can bond onto the polycarbonate a lot easier. So I think uh, the next thing that we're going to do is let everybody vote on the single color that they would like for the, the main bit. And I've got a load of beautiful samples I'm going to take some photos with in front of the Vectrex screen um, and see if everyone who's pre-ordered would like to sort of nominate their favourite and then from those we'll, uh, we'll have a final voting period. Nice. <laughs> so the game that you're working on, uh, Vec Ribbon, is a demake, I guess, because you're taking a modern game and reproducing it on an older machine um, of uh, a classic game. How did it come about that you chose... Uh, as something that you were going to recreate for the Vectrex. And could you talk a little bit about that process? Um, I can, but is now recording our conversation. So uh, <laughs> well, use, I, I, I use can, the V I word. Can, I, can, I can censor any words you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can answer. Um, okay. I mean, obviously, it's like, it's such a, such a beautiful... It's such a natural fit. I mean, mm. you look at the aesthetic of the original and you mm. have white vector on a black background, simple, mm. stylistic. You need, I think, the same number of buttons to play it as we have available on a Vectrex controller. It's mm. just once you've seen it and thought mm. in, the ve in a Vectrex context, you, you can't not do it. But mm. at the same time, it's, uh, it's very much not for the Vectrex. <laughs> It's okay. a game about a vector ladybird called Liv, who <laughs> lives in a pulsating music world. And it's and if anybody wants to draw any inferences, that's up to them. <laughs> but um, certainly, I mean, I guess looking at, you know, the lineage of uh, your Vectrex um, history, you know, like Raiding Party, it is something that combines visuals and music together. So presumably that aspect of the game is something that's important to you. Very much, yeah. Um, I di didn't think I could find any uh, music-based rhythm game on the Vectrex. Mm. Um, and it seemed to be a really good gap to fill. Yeah. Because it's a genre that, you know, you don't, you don't need super fancy graphics. I mean, look at something like Parappa the Rapper. 
Uh, and, you know, that that's a kind of gameplay genre that you could fit onto practically any platform. So long as you can detect button presses and, and play some music, you, you're going to be able to make something like that happen. Mm. Um, so it, it just seemed a, a really obvious and fun thing to try on the platform. But it was it was also actually uh, we started Vec Ribbon after the game that we'll be releasing after Vec Ribbon okay. um, as, a, as a break from a much bigger project. Mm. We thought, oh, we'll just uh, we'll just get this one out quickly, you know. But uh, <laughs> a year later, because of the pandemic, we're uh, finally. Uh, I mean, every time I say, "Oh, we're into the final furlong now," well, hopefully, let's let's see if we can get the overlays finalized. Um, but for the foreseeable future, we're 100% on Vec Ribbon, and that larger project um, hasn't seen any work in a long time. Okay, and that's the uh, Dungeons and Dragons themed one. Um, it's a space trading and exploration game. Because on your website, it says that some design elements from Raiding Party will be used in our forthcoming game, Rune. It's actually practically finished. Okay. The to-do list isn't, isn't huge, and it's actually looking like being a 32-gig game. Okay, it's just that because I, I assumed it was talking about the more medieval kind of knights and in armor type aspect of Raiding Party rather than anything else. It's the universe of Raiding Party. It's, oh. set, it's set in the same uh, conceptual universe, but okay. uh, a couple of thousand years into the future. The, ba- the dwarves colonized space, essentially. There was a big war between Vikings and dwarves, apparently, and uh, <laughs> that was the outcome of that. That sounds terrific. I shall look forward to <laughs> hearing more about dwarves and Vikings in spaceships. <laughs> so going back into sort of the history of uh, Shattered Screens, I guess... All of you kind of met in the uh, in the demo scene and started to decided to form a company together. Ash and I did, um, and Scarlett and I had worked on non-demo scene related projects together in the past. And mm. he'd always wanted to do some game design, mm. um, and was proving to be very strong on the design side of things on other projects. Uh, and the three of us got along so well that we just thought, yeah, let's do it. And you know. At the risk of asking you to speak for the others, have they found the experience of working on the Vectrex? You know, because it's something that's both very new to a lot of people, but also very old. <laughs> the the sound chip in the Vectrex is much, much simpler than the system in the Amiga, for example, okay. which really is, is very, very limiting. Um, mm. I think it's probably more limiting for a musician than it is for a coder, really, mm. because there's, there's really a, a finite amount of sound that you can get out of it. You're never going to have more than a very small number of channels and mm. they're all going to sound quite similar. So I think the music production process was initially painful, but certainly the the presence of decent tools written for demo scene applications like music production software as um, a really good tracker called Arcos Tracker, which I think began life for Amstrad CPC, but is, is brilliant for working on Vectrex. So availability of tools like that and other development tools like the, the Vectrex IDE by Malbon, uh, mm. which I think you talked about on your last uh, Vectrex-related yeah. program. Yeah. Um, everything like that. And, and, and there's so much that's still in active development. So our, our tool chain is a strange combination of software literally from the 1980s and <laughs> stuff that's had uh, its latest releases last week, you know. Nice. But also, I mean, you know, just thinking of the Vectrex as a music-making device, I mean, I don't think people, in a way, care 
that it's a machine that could possibly do polyphonic sound. I think they appreciate it for the kind of chip tune, aural aesthetic that it produces, you know. And, you know, you mentioned the last show I did on this subject when I was talking to Christoph Tutz, you know, and listening to the soundtrack for his games where he's doing a chip tune version of Walking on the Moon by the Police. It's a lovely thing to It's brilliant. To. So it I is. Think- it is. And I, I mean, like, with with music, maybe more than anything else, limitation does breed creativity. Mm. Um, so I, I think successful music on Vectrex is, is always a shining example of that. And the, there's always little tricks that have been used to, you know, make something sound or at least feel like it's it's really big and coming out of something better than a, a tiny little two-inch speaker whose cardboard cone has probably started to deteriorate 20 years ago. <laughs> but the whole thing comes together. It, it comes together. And the fact that that little speaker is far too close to the power supply in the Vectrex and not shielded at all. <laughs> so you always end up with an underlying 50 hertz hum. Well, okay, if that's going to be there, you know, you might as well accept it and work with it. So we spoke earlier about uh, the travails that you've had creating the overlay and how you want to do a beautiful box and everything. Do you find that with modern um, games creators like yourselves, there's almost a one-upmanship in terms of who can create the most beautiful Vectrex product? Because in recent years, Tutsoft, who I mentioned, he's brought out his Vector Pilot and Vector Patrol. Uh, In France, a company last year brought out USA uh, Zombie Apocalypse. Rasmussynth did his great uh, wire out, which may have some similarity with a game made by a certain manufacturer um, product, which again looks beautiful. Are you all kind of like looking at each other's products and thinking, oh, that's really cool, but I could do this better? <laughs> I, I think in a, does, it, it's definitely competitive and everybody's definitely challenged when somebody does something cool, but not yeah. in any kind of spiteful way. Oh, it's sure. all extremely supportive. Um, I know it's a cliche, but you know, you're, you're really competing against yourself. Like, mm. is, is this game better than your last one? Um, are you able to do render some particular effect faster or use more polygons than you were able to last time you did it? Um, <laughs> I think it's as much about the personal growth as it is about looking at what other people are doing. Because if it wasn't, the barrier to entry is high enough that you would never get started. You know, sure. you, you would look at... And there's, there's so many beautiful presentations. Um, even people who aren't going for the the classic boxed product and are just shipping on a naked PCB with a ROM on it that mm. happens, you know, that handily fits into the cartridge slot on a Vectrex. Even within that, there's some absolutely beautiful PCBs developed. That I think almost without exception, everybody in the uh, the Vectrex creators scene, if you like, that I've I've met or spoken to, has been extremely open about their techniques. Um, very happy to share knowledge uh, and to encourage. Other people, even if technically you're, you're in competition in the market, it, it really uh, it, it doesn't feel like that to me. Mm. It's it feels much more support, supportive and community driven. And you said, well, there is kind of a barrier to entry. Uh, at the same time, people can down, download a Vectrex emulator on their PC and play the demo version of Vec Ribbon, play your uh, raiding party, uh, and also play 3D Space Cab. So you know, if people don't want to invest two or three hundred pounds in a secondhand Vectrex. At least there is the ability for people to experience what you've been making in a in a slightly more mediated form. Oh, absolutely. When I say there's a high barrier to entry, I only mean if you're looking to compete in in that professional marketplace where everybody's putting out beautiful uh, mm. products. Certainly, as somebody as um, you know, an interested consumer, 
who wants to play retro games, you can't go wrong getting a Vectrex emulator. Uh, one of the most wonderful things is that the owners of all the IP, after the machine had failed, released everything into the public domain in the mid 80s. So with a single download, you can have um, every 18 games released on the platform and an emulator to run them on your Windows desktop. Uh, the barrier to entry to creation is also surprisingly low. You can download Malbon's Vide uh, IDE for Vectrex, which runs on Windows, includes a fully integrated development environment and, of course, an emulator right inside it. Um, and read the original programming manuals for the Vectrex as uh, <laughs> its designers wrote in the 80s, or many very high quality uh, and much more recent tutorials. So there's, there's a wealth of material out there. And I would say, don't let the obscurity of the platform put you off if you're interested in starting to try and actually um, do some creation of retro games, because it's, it's really one of the most comfortable assembly languages that you'll find. It's mm -hmm. really a simple machine. Um, there's a lot of very friendly uh, programming routines already built into the BIOS that help you get your first vectors on screen and, and get some text on screen and stuff. Nice. So it's 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 very approachable, I, I think, from uh, from every perspective. Cool. Well, I don't want to jinx it or make a liar out of you, but is there a chance people <laughs> might? Is there a chance that people might get Vec ribbon under their Christmas trees? Ah, <laughs> uh, I would I would like to be able to promise it, but um, I'm I'm completely unwilling to even <laughs> even give a percentage chance because I just don't feel it's fair. Okay. Um, Pre-ordered. Well, fingers crossed. At the it's, very least. One, one of the reasons we thought, oh, we'll just do this little simple game uh, before releasing our bigger project um, is that, you know, we really wanted to see, is, is it true that the last 10% is going to take 90% of the time? Yes. Resoundingly, yes. Especially during a pandemic. So our, our overlay makers are in Poland, which is where Scarlet is. I am here in Scotland, which does create a bit of an issue with iterating. But I firmly believe that we'll be we'll definitely have final overlays by christmas I'll t i can tell you that much whether we'll have them in boxes with cartridges and shipped i don't know okay <laughs> well like i said fingers crossed do you i mean is it Thanks, just Mike too. <laughs> on that note do you think it's just a coincidence uh that there are three vectrex programmers i can name who live in scotland is there something about <laughs> the scene <laughs> that leans towards vector-based no, retro I games I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it's because of the the way they were um, got rid of back in the eighties, mm. the original consoles, because they had the unfortunate timing of being on the market around the nineteen eighty three big video game crash, um, which knocked so many manufacturers out of uh, out of the running forever. Mm. Um, Vectrexes were the price was halved, the price was quartered, and they ended up on shelves in Woolies. Yeah, heavily, heavily discounted. Um, and I could see, okay, maybe there's a particular concentration of Woolworth stores in Scotland or something, but I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if it, if it was because of some something back in the day mm. that, uh, that there's that many. I, I was unaware of the Scottish Vectrex scene until I uh, started looking around for cartridges when we decided we were going to publish a game. Found a, a very convenient... Uh, cartridge source in Scotland for shells. Cool. Well, I won't end the interview by saying you'll be able to pick up a copy of Vec Ribbon by, but... I can definitely say you can download a free demo right now on our website. 
And just to uh, just to really sell it to you, the demo actually includes not only the game, but a Vectrex emulator and all of those 18 original um, production games. So you can try ours at the same time as experiencing all the classics. Cool. Well, um, thank you very much for uh, talking to me today. Um, I look forward to playing the final version of Vec Ribbon and also um, watching the progress on Rune, which sounds like a, a terrific project as well. I look forward to showing you Rune when we're uh, a little further down that road as well, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. As mentioned in the interview, unfortunately, Shattered Screens don't yet have a confirmed release date for Vec Ribbon, their upcoming music and rhythm game. However, you can download a couple of levels from their website, shatteredscreens.com, if you click on the link marked Freebies, where you can also find the game 3D Vector Space Cab and the demo Raiding Party. If you're lucky enough to own a Vectrex, you can then put these onto a programmable cartridge like the Vec Multi, the Vec Fever, or the Pytrex. Or if you don't own a Vectrex, then you can use the browser-based Vectrex emulator, which you can find at www.twitchasylum.com stroke J-S-V-E-C-X. That's twitchasylum.com stroke J-S-V-E-C-X. If you enjoyed today's program, please go to my blog, panelborders.wordpress.com, where there's a link to a similar show I made a year ago, talking to Vectrex programmers Christoph Tutz, who did the conversions of Galaxians, Moon Patrol and Time Pilot for the Vectrex, and another Scots programmer, Chris Malcolm, who has done a variety of games for the Vectrex through his indie label Binary Star. And I'm also talking to Arts Foundation Award shortlisted graphic novelist Zara Slattery, who is a fan of arcade games and vector-based graphics, and tries out a number of games on the Vectrex live in the program. To find out more about the Facebook Vectrex community, please go to facebook.com stroke groups stroke Vectrex. And for more information about this year's International Play Your Vectrex Day, please go to vectorgaming.proboards.com and click on the link. The International Play Your Vectrex Week, otherwise known as Vector War 11, runs from the 30th of October to November the 6th, and if you follow the instructions online and enter the scores that you've achieved on various Vectrex games, there are a number of prizes to be won. You've been listening to The Clear Spot on Resonance FM, presented by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. I'm back on Resonance in my usual first Wednesday of the month slot, presenting Panel Borders, where in our belated Halloween special I'll be looking at horror comics with Swamp Thing artist John Tottleben and indie creator Josephine Edwards. And I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, we're going to play out with another track from Vec Ribbon, Vibrate. Thanks for listening.
This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.